Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Martin Hellman, who is Professor Emeritus of Electrical Engineering at Stanford University. His work spans cybersecurity, reducing the risk of nuclear disaster, and peace. His invention of public key cryptography is at the heart of the secure portion of the internet and has won him many honors, including the Million Dollar ACM Touring Award, the top prize in computer science. In 2016, he and his wife of 50 years published A New Map for Relationships, Creating True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet. He has applied risk analysis to nuclear deterrence, and in his most recent project, which we will discuss, he has raised troubling questions about the assumptions that form the foundation for common current thinking about nuclear security. Marty Hellman, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Glad to be here. Thank you, David. Uh, Thanks for coming on. So you wrote this report for the Federation of American Scientists in April that suggests that national security is becoming inseparable from global security. Can you explain? Sure. And even worse, uh, we continue to act on the old uh, premise. The, the, short, the way to get people's attention is to note that in 1945, when World War II ended, the United States was totally secure. Nobody could touch us. Trillions of dollars later, today, we can be destroyed in under an hour. Something went really, really wrong. And in mathematics, which is my former area, when you end up with a ridiculous conclusion like that, it's proof that there's at least one assumption that must be off. And in this report, I identify a dozen, but the most fundamental one is the one that you just mentioned, which is in an age of nuclear weapons, cyber attacks, terrorism, global environmental crises, is it possible that national security is becoming an obsolete concept and we need to think of it as, unless we think of it as part of global security, including that of our adversaries? And that's the key point. You want me to explain that last part? Absolutely. Okay, so uh, we, every additional aircraft carrier we build makes us more secure in certain ways. But what, if you were Kim Jong-un, does it make you more compliant or does it make you more convinced you need nuclear weapons and missiles that can reach America's shores so that you can deter us from using those aircraft carriers to do to you what we did to Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi? Are you suggesting that the dictator of North Korea thinks thoughts? I I thought he was an irrational, subhuman, uh, inexplicable (laughs) adversary. Uh, That is the impression given by the American media, including the newspaper I read every day. I actually read two of them, the New York Times. Uh, uh, But uh, the Times is a little better than that, but uh, uh, they are horribly biased on North Korea and, and a few other places. Uh, actually, if you look at, I mean, certainly in terms of executing his uncle and things like that, crazy by our standards. Uh, I, and, but uh, if you look at our record of nuclear diplomacy with North Korea, it, they actually have a pretty good track record, uh, at least as good as ours. Uh, that is totally contrary to uh, uh, what most people believe, because that's the New York Times tells them otherwise. Uh, but it's actually true. And in the uh, book you mentioned uh, that my wife and I published, there's a section on North Korea. It's mostly about relationships, but there's a very short section, five to ten minute read on North Korea, that backs up what I just said. And the short version is uh, the main nuclear agreement we had with North Korea from 1994 to 2002, known as the 1994 Agreed Framework, uh, which was killed by President Bush in 2002 for domestic political reasons. And that comes from the former director of Los Alamos, his exact words. 
that agreement, uh, they stopped building two large reactors, uh, and they were supposed to get replacement reactors that are more proliferation-resistant, and they never got them, and they couldn't complete the partially completed reactors because they'd rusted so badly. Uh, other evidence, they didn't do their first nuclear test until 2006, four years after Bush killed the agreement. It was actually working reasonably well. It was actually working quite well, I would say. And we put, they pushed the limits of it, but so did we. And, uh, but they made some really concrete efforts to uh, go along with that because they wanted better relations with the United States, which they never got. That was actually the most important thing to them. Uh, Martin Hellman, I want to get back to this article we're talking about, but you also have written a very short uh, sort of vignette called The Man in the TNT Vest that I think puts this whole issue into a proper context. Would you mind just reading that that short uh, article? Sure, sure. Uh, and uh, so let's see. Imagine a guy wearing a TNT vest were to come into the room where you're sitting right now, and before you could escape, he managed to tell you he wasn't a suicide bomber. He had nothing to worry about. He didn't have the button for setting off the explosives. Instead, there were two buttons in very safe hands. One is in Washington with President Trump, so just sit there. The other is in Moscow with President Putin, so just relax. You'd still get out of that room as fast as you could, right? Well, returning to the real world, just because we can't see the nuclear weapons controlled by those buttons, why do we believe that it's safe to live in a world with thousands of nuclear weapons? There are actually about 14,000 today. We should be plotting an escape route, but society sits here complacently assuming that just because the Earth's explosive vest has not yet gone off, it never will. And, of course, the risk is even greater because there are buttons in London and Paris and Beijing and Jerusalem, New Delhi, Islamabad and Pyongyang, North Korea, and the terrorists are trying to get one of their own. So I conclude by saying when World War II ended, the United States was totally secure. Today, trillions of dollars later, we can be destroyed in under an hour. Isn't it time we started rethinking national security, including these nuclear weapons? I think, again, that that puts it in... in perfect context uh, for people to understand the the importance of the downside to nuclear weapons. Uh, there do remain people, uh, many of whom are paid to think this way, but there remain people who believe there's some sort of upside to nuclear weapons. What what are those claims and, and how do you refute them? Well, actually, first of all, I agree with some of those claims, but you have to put them in a context. The most, uh, the most frequent one is nuclear weapons have lengthened the time between world wars. I mean, we haven't had a world war in almost 75 years, uh, 70, let's see, 74 years. It'll be, uh, um, uh, um, that's true. But two things, how long, the real question isn't whether nuclear weapons have lengthened the time between world wars. It's by how much. I think they've lengthened it to about 100 years which means 1% a year risk, 10% per decade, worse than 50-50 odds over the lifetime of a child born today. So this is why my report is called Rethinking National Security. We make statements that on the surface might have some validity to them, but we don't look at the uh, trade-offs, the further implications. Hasn't that risk actually increased with that proliferation of weapons to that list of capitals that you named earlier? And and don't the uh, doesn't the the group of scientists with the doomsday clock have it closer to midnight than ever before? Well, the only recent addition to the list is North Korea, um, and so we actually well compared to 1945, not... they're all relatively recent. Oh yes, 
Yeah, but the thing is, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, that uh, most experts thought that there would be many more nations with nuclear weapons by now than there are. And some nations have actually given up nuclear weapons. South Africa did. Uh, they actually had a small number of nuclear weapons under apartheid that they gave up when the uh, uh, when it moved to a democratic rule, uh, one man, one vote. Uh, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and uh, Ukraine uh, yeah. all had nuclear weapons on their territory when the Soviet Union broke up, uh, and they gave them up. Uh, by the way, under some pressure from the U.S. and Russia, because Ukraine is often used as a counterexample, saying, hey, if they'd kept their nuclear weapons, uh, Crimea never would have been seized by Putin. But it's not that simple. Um, among other things, there's so much corruption in Ukraine if Ukraine had kept its nuclear weapons, uh, the terrorists might well have one now, because it's uh, conceivable people there would have sold one. So you uh, got to watch what you wish for. Just, just a quick aside, because it matters to me. Uh, does the population of Crimea voting overwhelmingly to rejoin Russia constitute Putin seizing them? Well, okay, this is another thing. Just, uh, just like uh, you know, the, the, the American media, including the you know the mainstream media like the Times, Wall Street Journal, give the impression that Kim Jong Un is a crazy guy. Uh, he's actually very calculating. He his his actions from a, from a national security point of view for his nation or a personal security point of view actually make more sense than what uh, we've been doing especially under Trump, but even under Obama. Remember, Obama attacked Libya, which hurt our national security. Um, so coming back, what was your question again, David? <laughs> the, the, the greatest threat to peace in the world, uh, according to many academics in the United States, the seizure of Crimea, uh, oh, was right. actually involved zero casualties and a public referendum with an overwhelming result that no one has re requested a repeat of, because they know darn well uh, it would be repeated with the same result. Uh, yeah, that, well... Um, there are two perspectives on, uh, that's what I was getting at, there are two perspectives on Crimea. The Western perspective is the one I just stated before, that it was seized by Russia. The uh, Russian perspective is there was a civil war going on in Ukraine. Neo-Nazis had gained control of the government. I'm not saying this is true, but this is uh, there's some truth to it, but uh, they overstate it. Uh, and the people of Crimea, in a, uh, a, in a democratic election, uh, overwhelmingly voted to uh, re um, to be reattached to Russia. So both have some truth to them. But um, again, the Russia section of our book, which is again a five to 10 minute read, and people can download a free PDF, by the way, if they uh, go to my um, Stanford, if they Google Hellman and Stanford, a free ebook will come up uh, uh, right near the top um, of, the, of that, my homepage at Stanford. Yeah. But, um, um, well, Crimea was a part of Russia for uh, since the the you know the 1790s. If I have to go back and check, and uh, Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine in 1954 when it didn't make any difference, and it was clear to me months before uh, um, the, um, the the uh, the riots or revolution in Kiev again again depending on your perspective that. Russia was willing to tolerate the fiction, and it was a fiction, that Crimea, and in particular Sevastopol, which is their equivalent of San Diego, it's their big naval port uh, on the Black Sea, uh, they were willing to go along with the fiction that it was a part of Ukraine. Uh, uh, but at the agreement that they had with Ukraine allowed them to keep, I think, 20,000 troops in, uh, in uh, Sevastopol. And any threat to Sevastopol as a Russian naval port, and particularly any threat that it would become a NATO naval port, 
would not be tolerated. And that's exactly what the revolution or coup, again, depending on which perspective you have, uh, that was the risk that it raised. And I didn't. I was hoping Putin wouldn't uh, take Crimea, but in fact, that's what happened. And it did settle things, uh, unfortunately, uh, in a way that Russia, uh, from its old thinking, just like we have to rethink national security, they should too, from their old thinking uh, was necessary for their national security. I like to think sometimes there are more than two perspectives and that one of them is the actual facts of the matter. <laughs> That's the one we ought to investigate the most. But uh, I, I, this was a distraction. I was just objecting to one word, the seizure of, of Crimea. Was, uh, good point. That was a good point. Uh, Martin Hellman, uh, in this article in uh, the uh, for the Federation of American Scientists, uh, there's a section where you ask, is nuclear diplomacy between, uh, I, I changed the word to between, uh, rogue nations a waste of time? Well, actually, I'd say with rogue nations, because we don't regard ourselves as a rogue nation. I don't uh, regard myself many, as a nation at all, but anyway. Well, but uh, uh, actually, North Korea would see us as a rogue nation. Um, uh, there were a few polls na- worldwide uh, have uh, that have asked what nation in the world is the greatest threat to world peace. Repeatedly, have the United States at the top of the list, outranking North Korea by like seven to one or something like that. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but that is the perception in the world. And if you look at what we did in Iraq, what we did in Libya, what we were doing in Syria, what we did going back to the 50s in Iran and Guatemala, uh, they actually have some reason for believing that. Uh, by the way, I should emphasize, while I criticize the inc- what I am convinced are incorrect, dangerous actions by my nation, I do it not out of uh, anger, uh, but out of love for this nation. My grandparents came here a hundred and over 100 years ago from Eastern Europe, and here I am, a professor, poor, I mean, they were poor immigrants, and here I am, uh, a professor at one of the world's premier institutions, uh, I mean, America is a fantastic country, and I want to make it even better, just as the abolitionists wanted to make it better and the suffragettes wanted to make it better. That's an important point to make. Uh, yes, indeed. It is, this is another section in the article. Is that nation a superpower? Oh, yeah. So the, one of the assumptions, you, you read it so often, it's hard for most Americans not to believe, and certainly Congress acts and the military acts as if we are the world's sole remaining superpower. And yet, I ask, what does it mean to be a superpower? Does it mean having immense destructive potential? If so, is Russia a superpower? Is China, is even North Korea, if it can take out a few American cities? Are we the world's sole remaining conventional superpower? I think there, the statement is probably true. But in a world with nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction and cyber weapons that can just cross borders so easily... What is the advantage and what are the disadvantages, is a key question, of being the world's sole conventional superpower? I think it encourages us to take actions, dangerous actions, uh, very dangerous to our even, even to our survival, uh, because we think we are, we have this immense power. Uh, I don't have it in the report, but I sometimes make the analogy that we, at an unconscious level, I think that we believe as a nation we, are, we have superpowers, kind of like Superman. Right. And we can, you know, jump off tall buildings and fly. And in that analogy, I would argue that in 2003, we climbed up a tall building called Iraq and jumped off expecting to fly and crashed to the ground and broke every bone in our body, but miraculously survived. And did we learn our lesson? No. In 2011, under a different president, a different party in power, Obama instead of Bush, we climbed up another tall building called Libya 
jumped off, and the same result. And now we're still trying to climb up Syria and jump off, expecting to fly. And yet, uh, until somebody presents more evidence why regime change in Syria would be any different from regime change in Iraq and Libya, both of which hurt the people living there and hurt our national security because it created chaos that allowed terrorists to gain large swaths of territory, a lot of income. Why Syria would be any different? Until that's explained to me, I would be very reluctant to see us do regime change in Syria in spite of the brutality of Assad. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, and so at the bottom of this this article, uh, you've got a statement that you want these questions raised to be answered and considered and congressional hearings held uh, on them. And you've got an impressive list of uh, endorsers of that petition, academics and former officials. Uh, what What has been the reception thus far? Well, actually, I'm glad you brought that up, because before I get into the reception, the reception's been good within a segment of the community. I mean, a former director of the National Security Agency, you know, that infamous agency, uh, uh, signed the statement. You can't say he doesn't know national security. A former chairman of the National Intelligence Council signed the statement. A uh, man who was on the National Security Council staff in charge of science and technology has signed it. Stanford's last president, John Hennessy, now the chairman of uh, uh, Google's parent, Alphabet, has signed it, uh, and several Nobel laureates. The reception has been good, and in fact, uh, I've, I've been talking to people in Congress. I have relationships with a number of congressmen and senators. Uh, uh, I mean, they're not my great buddies, although some of them I know moderately well, and there's been interest in this. Uh, I don't think it's yet time for hearings, but I'm hoping that these ideas will at least be talked about quietly among members, particularly of the uh, Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs Committees, uh, and so that as questions come up, uh, as we talk about building new aircraft carriers, as we talk about what the budget should be for the State Department, that these ideas will be there in their minds, and they will ask these questions of witnesses. If the top person over at Google uh, endorses this, I wonder if Google will drop all of its many Pentagon contracts. Uh, I should emphasize, John signed this, John Hennessy signed this as an individual. There's a little asterisk right. at the bottom that they're only signing in their individual capacities. This does not represent, uh, so, you know, he's president of Stanford. He, that doesn't mean Stanford backs it. It doesn't mean Google backs it. Understood. Would just like them to. Um, what What do you think of the of the approach of of ICANN of the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons and of raising support for that within the nuclear uh, countries like the United States? I think that's been a fantastic effort, and uh, uh, I think they've done a great job. Uh, I don't think we will actually abolish nuclear weapons before we do some other things. Like we need to really. Uh, you know, start rethinking national security, and it, it, that'll end up reducing and eventually, I believe, uh, abolishing nuclear weapons. But uh, uh, still, the ICANN uh, and, and the ban treaty, as it's called, uh, serves a useful purpose. We have a treaty banning the use of chemical weapons. It doesn't mean that we don't have them. It doesn't mean they're not used, but it stigmatizes them in a way that makes their use much less likely. The same way the ban treaty is a step toward uh, reducing the risk of uh, nuclear weapons being used. 
Outside of uh, former Senator Mike Gravel and Green Party candidates like Howie Hawkins, uh, are any of the presidential candidates who so dominate the U.S. news reporting uh, saying anything useful along these lines? Yes. Um, uh, Jay Inslee, the uh, governor of Washington, in fact, I met him uh, about three weeks ago, and I brought up the issue of uh, uh, his big issue is climate change. And I uh, said, I was pointing out that uh, national security uh, and climate change really go together, like the uh, Syrian civil war has been prompted partly, maybe largely, by drought, which is partly caused by human-induced climate change. And he says, I've been make, he told me, I've been making those that case. He says, I see national security dimension to climate change. So uh, uh, I haven't uh, talked to any other uh, presidential uh, candidates. Actually, I did talk to Gravel, um, because people may not know it, but he read the Pentagon Papers into the Senate record uh, back during the Vietnam War. And uh, Dan Ellsberg's a friend and colleague of mine. And uh, He was on a couple from, weeks ago, so listeners of this program should know it. <laughs> Yeah, um, and um, so uh, I, I did speak with Gravel about this as well, and he seemed receptive. But uh, Governor Inslee did not say anything about abolishing nuclear weapons. No, no, and actually, it's, whether he talks about abolishing nuclear weapons or just saying that climate change is an element of national security, one of the key things is we have to start seeing national security as a system problem rather than thinking that this aircraft carrier, this bomb, this nuclear weapon is going to help solve our problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, we need to, if, and so we need to see it in its entirety. The, the, if national security is a problem and we have to start understanding it as global security, uh, you don't make any n- mention of the need for global governance that some people would say mm-hmm. is required for that. Uh, is, it, is it not? First of all, we do have some global global governance. We have the UN. It doesn't have a you know the uh, uh, the power of the, the federal government. It's kind of like the confederation. You know the uh, the um, you know before the Constitution uh, when the states were all independent. Uh, but I don't think we're ever going to see, certain in my lifetime, a uh, a a world government with the kind of power that our federal government has. Uh, but we can do a lot without that. But we do need international agreements. We need we need to not withdraw from them, as Trump is doing. Uh, and uh, we especially don't need to uh, do things. We need to stop doing things so unilaterally and so aggressively. It really relates to a map. The book that my wife and I wrote is called A New Map for Relationships, and the subtitle, Creating True Love, True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet. We all... In the first story, she gets so mad at me that she, uh, 35 years ago, roughly, I think it was, that she rips the map out of my hands, and being 35 years ago, it's a paper map, tears it to shreds and throws it all over the car. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, it ends with both of us laughing at how ridiculously we were behaving. And as we wrote the book, we realized that was a beautiful, symbolic act that we each had brought outdated maps to our marriage me from my family of origin, her from her family of origin, from the movies you see, uh, in which when you don't get what you want, you get mad. It never works, but that's what we were doing. And we needed to piece together a new map, because actually in that story, to get to our next destination, after we stopped laughing at how ridiculously we behaved, we had to pick up the jigsaw puzzle that used to be our map and piece it back together again. 
And that's what we had to do in our relationship, and it's what the nations of the world need to do. What we're doing is not working. Uh, at, again, at the international level, let me just reemphasize, 1945, we couldn't be touched. Trillions of dollars later, we can be destroyed in under an hour, our nation. Something is terribly wrong. The map we're following is not working. And we, don't, we can't say exactly how the new map will piece together, but we need to stop following the old one, driving off the same cliffs. In, in your book, uh, you seem to argue not that we should focus on, you know, peace in our hearts as opposed to peace in the world, but that by analogy, we can learn from personal relationships tools for thinking about global relationships, including examples like North Korea that you touched on earlier. Do I, do I have that right? Well, almost. Uh, we actually say, in our case, we found working on our, per- our marriage, and by the way, we haven't had a fight, mistreated one another in well over 15 years. Now, we've been married 52 years, so it took us a while to get there. But I did not think that kind of relationship was possible, and I have to give Dorothy, my wife, the credit for that vision. And uh, I describe her as being my Beatrice. I'm sorry, Dante had his Beatrice in the Inferno, sure. guiding him through heaven. I have my Dorothy, and her name means gift from God, and she's lived up to that name. I mean, I didn't think that 40 years ago when we were close to divorce, by the way. <laughs> uh, but um, I'm sorry, what was the question again? I, I, I'm an absent-minded professor. Well, the, the question is the, the relevance to peace in the world. Oh, yeah, so we found we worked on our relationship and global issues at the same time. And as we explain in the book, there's a section where the personal and global meet, we explain why working on both, at least in our case, and we think more generally, will accelerate both. It's not like working on the world took energy away from our um, uh, working on our marriage. Can I, do you want an example? Sure. Okay. We got we uh, got about two minutes left. Okay, Dorothy and I had committed not to mistreat one another. Of course, with all the old hurts still in there, we fell down repeatedly. And one time I had mistreated her, but I hadn't realized it, so I hadn't apologized to her. And in response, she had mistreated me. She yelled at me, and she was supposed to apologize to me, no ifs, ands, and buts. And she was so hurt that she couldn't do it. But then she realized, if I can't make peace with the man I'm supposed to love most of all in the world, how can I expect world leaders not to have wars and eventually blow ourselves up? And so she realized it literally would be the end of the world if she didn't do what she'd promised to do. And with that, seeing it that big, she came and did what she needed to do. Yeah. So there's an example where working on the world helped her and helped us uh, to uh, improve our marriage. So it can go both ways. Uh, yeah. It, 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 short, uh, short, of, short of global governance, which I brought up earlier, what do you think of, of global thinking and global identity? Um, uh, give you the example of if I watch a movie about a gang of lunatic criminals, I don't then recount that movie to my friends using the term we as if I had been one of the criminals in the movie. But in this interview and in every discussion anybody ever has, uh, even people sitting in jail for protesting the U.S. military, they use the word we to refer to the lunatic criminal actions of the U.S. military. What if we used the term we to mean local communities or groups or humanity as a whole? Why, why do we have to give the first person to that gang of thugs? Well, I think this comes back to the idea that national security and national well-being is becoming synonymous with global security and global well-being. Uh, if we want to solve our immigration problem, 
we need to have the economy in Central America be better, and we need to stop climate change from preventing their crops from growing. That's all part of what's causing this mass immigration. They can't grow their crops anymore because the climate's changed. And so uh, my well-being depends on the well-being of people in Africa and Central America and uh uh, one can look at it spiritually, in which case it would, we'd see it even differently. And I do get into that personally, but I, I think with 30 seconds remaining, I'll shy away from it. Yeah, fewer than that. We've been speaking with Martin Hellman, who is Professor Emeritus of Electrical Engineering at Stanford University. We'll have links to his article and his book up at talknationradio.org. Marty, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It's been a great interview. You've asked some great questions. Thank you, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.